Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we're looking into the state of the NHS, strikes, and how they're impacting the governments and opposition parties of Scotland and Wales. So let's begin in Scotland. I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Chris Deeran, our Scotland editor, who we haven't had on the pod for a while, sadly, because he's been unwell. And so I'm particularly pleased to have him on today. And I do encourage our listeners to read his very striking piece about his experience in hospital on The New Statesman, the headline, My Life Flash Before Me. Hang on, where were the good bits? Chris, I would have hoped featuring on the New Statesman podcast would have been one of the good bits. I don't know what to say, Anish. <laughs> My life was flashing before me. Being on the New Statesman podcast didn't really seem to, to rate a mention. <laughs> At least that, it was one of the bad bits. That's true. I'm really glad to have you back and I'm glad to hear that you've recovered. So thanks for joining us. And actually, maybe we should start with the state of the health service in Scotland. We're speaking on Thursday afternoon. This episode will come out in a few days' time on Monday. But at the time of recording, Scottish A&E units have just had their worst week figures ever, with almost 2,000 people waiting over 12 hours to be seen and less than 50% being seen within the four-hour target time. You've written in your latest piece about this on the New Statesman website that Scots are watching their NHS blow up like the Hindenburg. So can you give us a bit of a picture of what's going wrong there and what it's like? It's probably easier to say what's not going wrong, to be honest. (laughs) And I, I know that this is not particular to Scotland and the things are going wrong in Wales and England and I'm sure Northern Ireland as well. Mm -hmm. But I think in Scotland, one gets the impression very often that the NHS up here is seen and is certainly talked about by our political leaders as being somehow superior to what's going on elsewhere in the UK, that they'll put more funding in, that the relationship between the government and the NHS workforce is better, etc, etc. But The reality is that the NHS is a mess and has been for a long time in Scotland. And we've got to the stage now where I think you struggle to find anyone working in any aspect of healthcare who would have very positive things to say about about the state of things. I was in hospital just as we talked about being ill for a bit. And I was actually in Forth Valley Hospital, which has the worst A&E waiting times in the country by a long way. And it was absolutely fascinating seeing it from the inside because it's not some God willing many of us have to look at. But the strain that was on the staff, especially the nurses and the doctors, the consultants, they just the sheer volume of work they were having to get through. They were understaffed because people had left 
during COVID or people were working for moving into the private nursing bank. The volume of people coming in was huge, putting patients into cupboards, using them as many wards. The wards themselves were packed full of more beds than they should have had. And it was it just felt chaotic. I think the whole time I was in there, despite the, eff- the extraordinary efforts of the people that were working there and people were waiting for hours down in the A&E waiting room. That was before we got really into the proper winter breakdown that we're seeing now. It was as bad as that then. I'm very glad I'm not in hospital at the moment. And I suppose that what we've seen with strikes and whatever around the UK, the Scottish government has tried to get around the table and that's been talked about a lot at Westminster, I know, in, in contrast to the Conservative government at Westminster. And they've had a bit of success with some NHS staff, but there are still, I think, plans for nurses to walk out of projected deal that was offered by the Scottish government. Things have got to a a pretty sorry state as we know when nurses are walking out and inevitably that's going to make things worse rather than better. And I guess what we have is the the almost perfect storm of the aftermath of COVID and people still having COVID, but we've got all the the, uh, consequences of cancelled operations, etc. We've got flu, which is running through the population at the moment. Strep has been talked about, bed blockers and all, all the kind of stuff that, that we're seeing. And it, it certainly feels like the NHS up here is almost beyond creaking now and is starting to fall apart. The people I know that work in the health service are just absolutely at their wits end and they don't particularly feel that the government in Scotland is writing to the rescue anytime soon. That's really interesting because you did make that point that Nicola Sturgeon speaks about her relationship with the Scottish NHS as if it's superior to the NHS in the rest of the country. And like you say, they did have some success in staving off strikes at the end of last year when you saw NHS staff striking across the rest of the country. And they've also decided to raise taxes on higher earners as well to put into the health service. So they are doing some things differently. To me, that feels like it could be just as much of a risk as a sort of opportunity to make it look like Scotland goes it alone or Scotland's some kind of pioneer, because that means it dampens some of the argument of we'll just blame Westminster for the issues in our public services, which you write about in very strong terms in your latest piece. I think you you say that how it's not our fault is the one phrase that sums up 15 years of SNP rule. The SNP are always very happy to point out where aspects of the Scottish NHS and some of the data that comes out, if it's even marginally better than what we've seen in the rest of the UK is pointed out that, hey, we're much better in, at the NHS in Scotland than we are in the UK. Whereas now Hamza Youssef, our, our hapless health secretary, is uh, very quick to say that it's just as bad in England as it is up here because things aren't going particularly well. I think the problem with the buyout, they've put taxes up a little bit on, on better off and they're using that to put some money into the health service. But the reality is that injection isn't going to make much of a difference. We know that the NHS eats money. And if you go back to the new Labour years and the massive injection of money that went into it then, which made some difference, but it was on such a very different scale to what we're talking now. And also it was accompanied by quite a large programme of reform as well. Remember the diagnostic and treatment centres that Blair brought in, which were privately owned. The government basically paid them to bring waiting lists down with some success. The ideology is such up here that the idea of using the private sector to reduce waiting lists is anathema. And I think the pro-independence movement, as well as the SNP as the leading pro-independence party have set their have set their stall out in such that the idea of the private sector being involved in anything to do with the NHS is anathema, despite the fact, of course, the GPs are already private and there are other aspects of the NHS that are already private, but we're not allowed to talk about that. I think the problem is that you can put as much money in really as you want, but if it's not accompanied by reform and modernisation, then it's not going to make a huge amount of difference. And we actually saw, I think, during COVID, um, because of the scale of the problem that went on then, there was quite a lot of modernisation went on within the NHS. I can only talk about it here. I'm sure it was the case throughout. But a lot of the things that the NHS has been dragging its feet on in terms of computerisation, digitalisation, 
that sort of thing. In the course of the crisis, they were forced to take some steps forward on, on that stuff and it made quite a difference. But unfortunately now it seems like we're running into the usual sands, which is that the SNP simply needs more money, but there is no amount of money you can throw at it that is actually going to make a huge difference to the outcome. So I suppose in the piece I've written for this week, one aspect of what I'm looking at is simply that if you have been in government for 15 years like the SNP have, and you tried very hard not to annoy nurses or doctors or the health unions by proposing reforms, which might be difficult for some of these people, you might be asking them to give up some deeply ingrained practices. You might be asking them to modernise some of the working practices that they have, and it might not be easy for those people or comfortable. If you've spent 15 years not doing that and allowing things really to get tougher for patients, tougher for doctors, events happen like COVID that make things much, much harder as well. Then when it comes to the point where you really do hit the crisis, you, you haven't done the hard work in advance that may allow you to get through it that bit more easily. And instead, what you end up with is, is the SNP just saying, we're putting more money in than down south because we care a bit more. And the truth is, it's not going to make a bit of difference to Nicola Sturgeon feel a bit better about herself, but it's not going to make a huge amount of difference to many patients in Scotland. Mm. And when it stops, when it becomes clear that it won't be making that much difference, which I agree with you, it seems unlikely that an injection of a bit of extra cash is really going to dampen down this crisis in any significant way. Will it not then beg the question of who is to blame them? Will they go back to blaming Westminster for not giving them enough money to put into the health service or austerity on a national level? Yes, because <laughs> that's what they always do. And perhaps they have an argument. That obviously, through the years of austerity, the money that could have been spent wasn't. But it's not just about money. And I think we're seeing that in public services, certainly in Scotland, where there has been more spent on the public services per head of population than we've seen elsewhere in the UK. And the results, it's not just in health, it's also in education, are no better and often worse than we see elsewhere in the UK. And that's because a lot of that spending is not accompanied by any real reform. It's a very soft approach to, to the public services. And if you think that perhaps the role of government is to do the hard yards on reforming public services, they're never finished public services. They constantly need modernised and updated. And I think if you look at some of the highest performing services around the world, actually, some of the states that the SNP would aspire to, there have been hard conversations between governments and, say, public sector workers and a lot of changes to working practices to ensure that those public services are as modern and as user-friendly as they might be. And we simply haven't had that conversation in Scotland at any point since devolution started, possibly the Labour government, Labour Lib Dem government in the early years moved a bit on that. But 15 years of SNP government, we've seen very little appetite for reform, very little attempt to, to modernise public services. And as the data comes out, the data that they will let us see, because they've obviously done their best to sit on a lot of data or just prevent it coming out in the first place, it shows us that things are declining. And the problem we have is that in Scotland, voters are pretty much 90% of voters vote in elections based on their constitutional preference. It's nothing to do with the performance in schools or the performance of the NHS. It's to do with, do you want independence or do you not want independence? And therefore, it really suits the SNP to blame Westminster for everything and to say, if we were independent, we can offer you this better funded public services, higher public sector salaries, nonsense, nonsense. but they're able to throw that out there. And because voters are really thinking about elections in terms of the constitution, they'll be swayed one way or the other, depending on what the constitutional preference is. So what that means is we're not having a debate about education reform, we're not having a debate about health reform, and those services grind on. There's no oil in the gears left anymore, but they grind on, and a bit more money's thrown here, a bit more money's thrown there. Westminster is blamed for there not being more money, but the system is not working as it should. And that's where real political leadership and real courage to reform public services, and sometimes 
to go against the vested interests and the people that are working in those public services because as ever, people don't necessarily want to change their working practices. Sometimes it has to be forced on them, but we haven't done that in Scotland. There's been some of that in the rest of the UK, certainly in England during the Blair and Cameron years. It's happened elsewhere in the world as well. But in the end, I think you you get public services you get depend on the government you elect. And if you keep electing a government that has no interest in reforming because its interest is in Scotland becoming independent, then you'll get the public services that you voted for. Yes, that's and, a bit gloomy, I know. So, and yeah, I, I, yeah, you make but, you know, that point in your piece is quite a sad ending. <laughs> yeah, things are not good, and there's no point in. I think, regardless of who you vote for, looking at the state of public services at the moment and saying, hey, haven't the SNP done a great job and haven't the Tories done a bad job? They've both done a bad job. And we can see all around us that the world is changing and that there's a lot of digitalisation coming into public services, that there's a lot of need to change the way we think about public services, how we fund them, a lot of new demands coming online. And we haven't faced up to any of that yet. And I think until we do, we're just going to be like Groundhog Day. Every winter we'll have this a bit worse. Yeah, it's really interesting because you mentioned public opinion there and what drives people to vote in elections. It's quite different in England. Keir Starmer seems quite confident against Rishi Sunak. Conservatives are trailing in the polls. We saw both of them do these New Year speeches and you could see the contrast between the two of them. It feels a little bit like we're headed towards a change in government, although anything could happen. How has the situation in the NHS and the wider sort of malaise in public services that you've just described affected public opinion of Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP? And are the opposition parties in Scotland landing any blows particularly successfully? Uh, most recent polls, I think, have shown that public confidence in the SNP to run, say, the NHS has dropped quite a bit. But that, right. as I was talking about people basing their vote in the constitution, that doesn't mean support for the SNP has dropped quite a bit, <laughs> or indeed support for Nicola Sturgeon herself. The last, I think, five or six polls have shown that the support for independence has been above 50% when you remove the don't knows from the equation, which is, I think, the longest run of an advantage for independence that we've seen. And pollsters I've spoken to would put a bit of that down to the Supreme Court ruling that the Scottish Parliament couldn't wasn't entitled to hold a, an independence referendum under its own Steam, I think mm -hmm. there's, there's a bunch of voters who don't like the idea that Holyrood can be told what it can and can't do by Westminster. There's also, I think, finally the sense that Brexit is proving to be a block on economic growth and on maybe identity, Scottish identity being what it would prefer to be, starting to feed through into those figures as well. I think as we see the impact that Brexit's having on economic growth and, and uh, on businesses and communities that people are in Scotland who obviously voted by a substantial majority to stay in the European Union are starting to, some of the, there's quite a close alignment now between people who voted Remain and people who are moving over to Yes uh, on, on the constitutional picture. So I think those are probably the two things that are driving that push for independence at the moment. That said, the posters I've spoken to don't think it's probably a long-term shift that things will probably balance back out towards 50-50 where they've been for a long time. The SNP seem impervious to any mistakes and all criticism, still, they're still miles ahead. The opposition parties are still battling it out for second place somewhere in the SNP's rearview mirror. And I guess until that link between constitutional preference and your vote in, a, in a, an election is broken, we're pretty much going to stay that way. And it will really be you know, SNP in power and then Labour versus Conservatives to be the opposition. Right. Okay. Because it's interesting what you say about the potential impact of that Supreme Court decision on the second referendum, because that sort of helped them, it seems, if even just in the short term in the polls, but also it helps come the next election because the idea is because the Supreme Court ruled against them that they will turn the next election into a vote 
on whether or not to have another independence referendum, which, as you say, is de facto what it is each time anyway in people's eyes. I have to say, I think it's a mad plan. I think it's completely <laughs> mad. I think it puts at risk so much of what the SNP have achieved over the last sort of 20, even 30 years. They've been a gradualist party for a long time now, which is that they claim the sort of ground towards independence yard by yard rather than free by 93 as their old slogan had it and things like that where they make a crazed dash with claymores and kilts towards the border. That, that hasn't been the case for a long time. But whole, attempting to use a general election as a definitive decision on Scotland's future is goes against everything that they've done in, in these last few decades. And also it's a huge risk on their own part because they need to get 51% or whatever of voters supporting independence backing parties for that to be the case. But then, of course, even if they get that, they then require the British government to accept that that is a reasonable position for them to then begin negotiations for independence. And I suspect come that election, um, given the SNP haven't had anything like 51% for a, a long time. I think they got 45% last time and they got mm -hmm. in the 30s the time before that. I suspect it will put as many voters off as it would attract voters to know that in a general election, there are any number of things you might want to vote for. But if you vote SNP, your vote will be taken as a mandate to begin independence negotiations. Now, if you're in favour of independence, that's fine. But there are people who vote SNP because they think they have been the best party to run Scotland or to go down to Westminster and challenge the Westminster government, who I suspect will be put off by the radical nature of what their vote will be counted as being part of. I, I, again, speaking to posters, I think the idea is that it's going to be a, a, an awful reach for the SNP to get above 50% in the next general election. Anything can happen. But it just seems such a gamble after yeah. everything they've achieved so far. And I, I don't know whether it's Nicola Sturgeon coming to the end of her time as First Minister, which she is, and just fancying another crazy dash at the finish line, not really thinking about what the carnage she might leave behind her in the pro-independence movement at that point, or whether she knows something that, that we don't. I suppose the sad thing for people like me is that if that becomes the target for the next general election, the idea that you can have a proper debate about education or health or the public services or the economy or whatever is just for the birds because it will all be about grievance and all be about suggesting that Westminster is holding Scotland back, shouting at Westminster calling Labour equal to the Tories. Down south, there'll be a, an election based on should the Tories stay in government or should Labour get them out? Up here, it will be should it be a bit independence or, or shouldn't it? And everything else gets squashed and not properly debated and our public services continue to, to founder. Yes, yes, absolutely. I can really imagine that quite depressing situation. And yeah. obviously it is a risk, but it does give them the opportunity not to have to be held accountable on their record on, those, well. on yeah. those areas <laughs> in that election campaign. However, the Labour Party in Scotland and indeed in England have long been trying to run elections on the state of our public services and the public doesn't often take kindly to being told what an election should yeah. be run on. So it could be the other way around this time and the public don't like that idea from the SNP. You're voting on independence and actually do vote along the lines of how they feel public services should be run. That would be a nice which could thing. Be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we'll see. We won't make any predictions now. And actually, talking about that relationship between Westminster and the Scottish Parliament, I did want to ask you about this. It's a different subject. But they passed the Gender Recognition Bill at the end of last year, which means Scots from the age of 16 will be able to legally change their gender through a self-identification process for the first time. And in response, Alistair Jack, the Scotland Secretary here, has said that the UK government will consider using powers under the Scotland Act to prevent the bill becoming law. So there's this period where any bill agreed by MSPs comes under review by the UK government before reaching that royal assent stage and becoming an act. Is it likely that the UK government will actually go through with this? And wouldn't it create constitutional mayhem for them to try and veto a bill like this? Obviously, its health policy is devolved. 
It is, but I guess the, uh, I think it's a Section 35 order. We've got used to the Section 30 order, which allows a referendum. <laughs> we now have to get used to a Section 35 order, which allows, I think, the uh, Secretary of State to intervene in devolved legislation. That exists for the reason that if the Scottish Parliament were to pass legislation that then had a consequence for the rest of the UK, the UK government didn't want, the UK government could intervene and say, you can't do that. Now, I'm sure there's a part of Nicola Sturgeon that is desperate for the UK government to intervene. It would no doubt, if they did, it would no doubt end up in the Supreme Court again. So yeah. you'd have a sort of referendum ruling redux, if you like, but this time on the Gender Recognition Act. And I think as we saw, the fact that the Supreme Court ruled in favour of Westminster previously had something of a, a boost to the SNPs and independence as a, as a, a voter preference. They might see this as being something that would really infuriate Scots because although I suppose that the other side of that is that the Gender Recognition Act is not popular in Scotland, according to all of the polls that we've seen, each of the clauses that were in the, or each of the main measures that were in the Act when tested in the polls were, there was a substantial majority against them. It then comes down to whether people are comfortable with Westminster intervening because they don't like the Act itself, or whether they think that regardless of whether they're in favour of the Act as an individual, Westminster should be able to tell Holyrood what it can and can't mm. do. I think it will be messy, whatever happens, and I'm sure Alistair Jack's weighing that up. It, it does come to the point that Holyrood is a, a statutory creation of Westminster. It's there to take decisions on health and education and the economy and to give Scotland a greater democratic immediacy when it's d discussing these things and deciding these things rather than just wait for Westminster to get around to an hour a week or whatever it, it used to be. And that's what it's there for. But equally, Westminster is entitled to defend itself and the integrity of the United Kingdom and the impact that any of the devolved institutions might have on the rest of the UK if they feel they need to. I suppose what's important is that if Westminster is going to intervene, that it explains very clearly and uh, fairly why it would be doing what it's doing. It would undoubtedly create chaos up here. It would infuriate yes voters, but everything infuriates yes voters and everything creates chaos up here. So maybe in the end, the, what you should do is do the right thing for your own institution and deal with the consequences after. But I'd be very surprised if, I think, if Westminster didn't take some action and we end up at the Supreme Court again. Right. Okay. We'll see. And they've not got long, so we'll see that yeah. in the coming weeks. I think that's all for now. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for coming back on. It was really good to have you back and we Thanks will speak Anish. to you again soon. Okay. All the best. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
And now I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Hexter, co-host of the excellent Hiraith Welsh Politics podcast. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nish. In Wales, the big political story at the moment, as is the case across the UK, is the state of the health service. And we're recording on a Thursday. This episode will be out the following Monday. But at the time of recording, there's been two troubling stories, even in just the space of a day from Wales concerning the health service. A man in Monmouthshire, I'm so- sure you've seen this, had to carry his granddad while he was suffering from a cardiac arrest into hospital because there was no ambulance for him. We're seeing similar stories in England as well at the moment. And the Welsh government advising NHS staff to discharge people home even without a care package. You can see how worrying that situation is. Care packages include people helping people dress, use the toilet, etc. And it seems that a move like that would only result in people having to return to hospital at a point soon. So Matt, do you want to start off by just giving us an overview of the state of the NHS in Wales? Are those two sort of anecdotes representative? Uh, I think it's very clear that there are concerns about the NHS in Wales, but there are concerns about the NHS uh, across the country. The stories that you have just talked about, Anoush, are indicative of wider concerns across the NHS in Wales. Social care, as you said, is a huge issue whether that be now that people are being discharged out of hospital without a social care plan or and, and or more, more importantly, perhaps the fact that the absence of a functioning social care system across the UK means that more people are staying in hospital who could be discharged from those beds if social care plans are available. I think we've also seen in the last few weeks that many health wards across Wales are saying to people they shouldn't go to their A&E unless there is a life-threatening condition. And I think, of course, that is very worrying, but I think it has to be couched in the sort of devolved context to explain why the situation is potentially so bad in Wales. And I think obviously whilst the Senate does have responsibility for the NHS and paying conditions, the full range of economic levers that are available in Westminster or even in Holyrood are not available to Cardiff Bay, which means that they're not in the economic position with which they would be able to improve the situation beyond what it currently is. The Welsh NHS budget is already half of the Welsh government's budget. So it's very difficult to see where additional funding can come from for this unless the equivalent, unless money, more money is spent in Westminster that can increase the Welsh government's budget through Barney Consequentials. That's really interesting. Let's talk a bit more about that because Rishi Sunak has brought up the Welsh government's predicament with the NHS in PMQs, I'm sure you've seen. Clearly, he thinks this is a sort of weak point for Keir Starmer to get him on. In Labour-run Wales, the situation is like this. Why isn't Labour doing more to help patients in Wales? That kind of attack line. Health is a devolved policy matter, and there is a degree of responsibility from the Welsh government there. But what you're saying is their hands are actually tied. Where does the balance lie? How much can Mark Drakeford use that line of argument before he simply starts looking weak? In Westminster, the Welsh NHS has long been used as a weapon against Labour. David Cameron calling off his dyke, the the line between life and death, to various Conservative (laughs) PMs focusing on the fact that the Welsh government are the only government in the history of the UK to decrease NHS funding. However, as with many exchanges in Westminster, the content of debate and the question sessions are focused usually on quick barbs and winning duels rather than providing any sort of helpful context to the debate. So it's always important to remember the very limited economic levers available to the Welsh government, and it, because it does remain in the main Westminster, which holds Wales's purse strings. So in terms of tax, because it's a, it's a very easy one to understand. Yeah. In Wales, we can vary our tax rates. So we could add, say, an extra penny onto the pound in income tax, 
but we don't have any control over the tax thresholds. We've seen in Scotland where they've altered the mm. bans to say that this particular group of earners should pay more. In Wales, we don't have that power. We'd have to operate within the existing bans as provided to us by the UK government. So again, in the context of those tax bans, if you put an extra one penny on the pound on the base rate of tax in Wales, you'd raise an additional 220, 230 million. If you put an extra penny on the higher rate, you'd raise around 30 million pounds. And then on the additional rate between three and five million pounds in addition, because Wales doesn't have a very big top high additional rate of taxpayers. So whilst that sounds like a lot to me or you in governmental terms, it's not that much. And also in the context of pay rises, which is one of the massive things that has caused so many so much pressure on the NHS, the fact that we're seeing increased industrial action, for every mm. 1% of additional pay you would give to a public sector worker in Wales, that will cost you £100 million. And I think it doesn't take a genius to work out that what people in the public sector are calling for and that additional money, it doesn't go very far. And that is also when you consider you'd have to spend some of that additional money on frontline services. Right. Okay. Because of course, and you mentioned it there, there have been strikes among NHS workers in Wales as as well as in England. This means that basically Mark Drakeford and the Welsh government is not able to give those workers what they want. Is there an appreciation that they there are limits on what they can do within the sort of devolved structure of the UK? Or is there as much anger and disappointment in the Labour-run government there as there appears to be in England among health workers and indeed the public regarding the nurses' strikes and the refusal to negotiate? I mean, there are concerns about public services here as there are in other parts of the UK. However, unfortunately, Wales doesn't really have the same level of political news coverage as England and nor does it have the same sort of level of Devo literacy amongst the general population as you mm. may see in Scotland. Now increased during the pandemic, knowledge of what which government was responsible for what increased and the new but the nuances of how things are funded and who is responsible for things such as paying conditions isn't necessarily widely understood. And additionally in Wales there is a tendency for people to attribute good things to the Welsh government, even when it happens <laughs> in a non devolved area. And similarly, there's a tendency for bad things to the UK government, even when it does occur in a devolved area. So you, you can argue there's an account accountability deficit, which isn't good for Welsh democracy, but politically that doesn't seem to be having much of an impact on the Welsh government. As seen in recent Senate polls, it shows that Welsh Labour have their largest lead for over a decade. Right. Interesting. You've just been explaining very eloquently and very clearly the way that it's structured. But these kind of discussions about Barnet consequentials, etc., they're difficult for Labour politicians to make in a soundbite. And you were talking about that kind of the barbs and the duelling in Westminster. It's difficult for politicians, even in uh, in Parliament in Westminster, to make those kind of arguments when they're being attacked along those lines. You used to work as a staffer for some Welsh Labour politicians. Yeah. I hope you don't mind me mentioning no, no. that. How do Labour politicians make those kind of arguments in a way that the public can quickly understand without getting too much into the weeds of trying to explain devolution and how it works? I think that the concept of austerity is now well understood. And mm. For a long time in Wales, the understanding has been that we are underfunded by the UK government. And I think that has seeped through to most people. Most people do understand that the public realm has been underfunded by the UK government. It, well, if that's your particular political opinion anyway, you may, have a, you may think that what the UK government is doing is responsible, etc. 
But I think that most people do understand that although the Welsh government is responsible for funding the Welsh NHS, that the Welsh government's funding is still controlled by the UK government. And I think most people don't understand necessarily how the tax and tax raising system works in the devolved context. So they're not necessarily calling on the Welsh government to increase taxes. And I think that at the moment, with the cost of living crisis, they're unlikely to to make that call. Right. Okay. But it's, of course, an argument that the SNP can use because they are going to raise taxes in Scotland on higher earners to boost spending on health and social care. And it's an argument they can use against Labour. Why aren't you doing this in Wales? You've explained very clearly why it's a different situation, but does it not eventually make Mark Drakeford look weak, not using the levers that are available to him? It's very difficult, Anoush, because I think that Mark Drakeford has for a long time been seen to be reticent to use those tax raising powers. He recently revealed mm-hmm. in an interview that if Liz Truss's plan to drop a penny off the rate, so go down go down to and get rid of the additional rate of tax, he probably would have used Welsh powers to to raise that back up to where it was. But he's long been reticent to use these powers. And I think because of how poorly they are constructed compared to the Scottish powers, it is very difficult to use them. They're a bit of a blunt instrument. And because of how close we are to England, it would become a really big political issue. What happens Mm. if you work in Bristol and live in Wales and vice versa? Where do you pay your tax? How do you move that money across the border? Also, whilst the tax rates are being constructed in the way they are, they're a huge political weapon. So the Conservatives will will use that both sides of the border. In Wales, tax is never, even though we've had these powers for a time now, it's never really been an election issue. The Welsh Conservatives haven't really talked about dropping the Welsh rates of tax. And I think that if as soon as that power is used, it becomes a live political issue here, one that will be used by Welsh Conservatives against the Welsh government, but also by the UK government against the Labour Party in Westminster. Yeah. No, I can really see that situation. But despite this dilemma, you mentioned earlier in the interview that Welsh Labour are high up in the polls. Is this a failure of the opposition parties in Wales or is it a sign of Welsh Labour's strength? A little column A, a little column B. I don't know to what extent your listeners know, but obviously Plaid Cymru entered into a cooperation agreement with the Welsh government. And that has sort of nullified the potency of their opposition. Obviously, mm. I think we've been talking about health. Health is not covered within the scope of that agreement necessarily between Labour and Plaid social care is to a different degree. But I think the general economic landscape has made them less willing to attack Welsh Labour in, in, in health and hasn't has made them less willing to call on funds to be reallocated from other departments towards doing that because they have their agreed areas where they've made deals with the Welsh government and they want to see that money spent there. And I think the Conservatives have been focusing on the NHS in Wales for a very long time. But it's very hard to get cut through for the Welsh Conservatives, whilst the UK government in Westminster is perceived to being poorly. So the opposition hasn't been as strong as it could be. But I think that Welsh Labour do have a, a, win- a winning formula in Wales. I think we've recently seen Welsh Labour celebrate 100 years of electoral dominance in Wales, 100 years of being the largest party, um, they are the most dominant party in the democratic world. And if you, if I had to put money on it, I'd say that they'd probably get to another 100 years of dominance in Wales too. And I don't think that's necessarily being arrogant. I think the Welsh Labour Party have been able to 
adapt to change and make themselves reflective of Wales, they are, this, this, behind my head, the phrase clear red water. They've been able to ensure that it's perfectly possible to be proudly Welsh and proudly Labour at the same time. They haven't, as Labour did in Scotland and arguably also in England, sacrificed the flag. To clear red water has come to mean so much more than what it did at the time, this rejection of UK Labour's choice-based agenda. Now it means you can be in Wales, you could vote Labour not only because they're left-wing, but because they're also quintessentially Welsh. And I think that Welsh Labour's ability to encapsulate that mood of the nation means that they are in an incredibly strong position and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. Mm. And when you put it like that, it does really make you think about Keir Starmer's Labour and Labour in Scotland, perhaps to to a slightly lesser extent. But have they learnt those lessons from Welsh Labour's identity and brand even? I know it's a glib way of putting it, but you do feel as if they've got this kind of quite an impressive formula in Wales that they haven't quite managed to grasp in England. Obviously, Labour are doing much better in the polls across the country. But there is still this slight tension in the Labour Party in England about being a patriotic party, but as well as being a progressive party that I don't think they've quite managed to nail yet, even though that is one of their priorities. Yeah, I think it's very hard. I think that the British left has been less willing for a long time to embrace this idea of progressive patriotism. I think someone said that many years ago than we have in Wales. I think in Wales, we are much more comfortable with the idea of socialism and not nationalism, but certainly being proud of the country you seek to run are ideas that fit much more neatly together in the eyes of a Welsh left-wing person than necessarily have done in the eyes of the British left for a long time. And I think that Kistama has done a lot of good work in terms of making Labour more closely attributed to the union flag. I think that there possibly needs to be more work to boil down into what exactly that means and how the Labour Party can find the right balance that the Welsh Labour Party have done, making people feel proud to be British in the same way that people in Wales feel proud to be Welsh, but also proud to back a progressive party. So Mm. I think there's more work to be done in the UK sense of exactly how that works in practice. And I think also, uh, Anoush, one of the things that we in Wales for a long time have discussed in terms of the UK Labour Party is, and John Denham has done lots of work on this, is the idea of an English Labour Party. And I think that the UK Labour Party could do a lot of good work in the space of trying to make themselves feel. At the same time, they can be a Labour Party for the whole UK, but specifically at the moment, given the purview of what they're responsible for um, and respecting their sister parties in Scotland and Wales, that they also can be a good English Labour Party at the same time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and just lastly, looking ahead towards the potential next general election, mm. you know, you mentioned that you think that Welsh Labour's sort of electoral success will continue riding high in Senate elections. How about in the next general election? Obviously, the Conservatives made inroads in what we very simplistically call the Red Wall in 2019. Will the Red Wall of Wales be rejecting the Tories next time round, do you think? I know it's unfair to ask for project- <laughs> predictions, but what's your sense of... of how politics is shifting in those kind of areas. On Hiraith, we have a big klaxon noise that goes off every time anyone makes a prediction. It's a really good way. Well, you're klaxon-free here. <laughs> this is safe space. Um, <laughs> it's difficult, I think, because obviously we'll have very different boundaries in Wales. In For those of you who are listening who don't know, Wales will go down from 40 Westminster seats to 30. Oh. But on the current polling, it does look like Labour will do very well in Wales. 
I could see a significant number of those North Wales seats that were lost to the Conservatives going back into back to Labour. Obviously, there's also Ernest Morn in Anglesey up in North Wales, which was won by the Conservatives last time. This time you've got from Plaid Cymru who'll be standing in that seat, who's the current MS for that constituency, very popular. So whilst you may, you would usually expect that in a big Labour swing, that seat may go back to Labour. It could go Plaid this time. Lots of unique little local battles like that. But on current polling, there's only one seat in Wales that Labour has never hold. That's Montgomeryshire. And even on current polling, some polls have a, have Labour winning Montgomeryshire, but I don't see that happening necessarily. But with the current swings you're seeing, yeah, I would definitely imagine that whilst I wouldn't expect sort of 97 level Conservative free Wales, I'd certainly see fewer Conservatives in Wales, well, being represented in Westminster in Welsh constituencies than we have at the moment. Interesting. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. Thanks so much, Matt. It was great having you on and hopefully we'll speak to you again at some point. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, my colleague Chris Deering and our guest, Matt Hexter. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.